0: That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, for the first time since 2003, America plans to carry out an execution mandated at the federal rather than the state level. The Trump administration favors the death penalty, but even the older conservatives who once supported it are having second thoughts. And Ennio Morricone composed hundreds of film scores over the past 50 years. But it was the movies he made with Sergio Leone that showed how, rather than a musical afterthought, soundtracks could be central to a film's story and its feel. First up, though… This week, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson is expected to reverse a decision he made in January to allow the Chinese telecom giant Huawei to build part of the country's 5G network.
2: The British public deserve to have access to the best possible technology. Now, if people oppose one brand or another, then they have to tell us what's the alternative.
1: Britain has come under enormous pressure from its biggest ally, America, which sees Huawei as a security threat. It's not the only Chinese firm that America views with suspicion. Last week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told Fox News the government was considering banning the social media app TikTok, which is owned by the Chinese firm ByteDance.
3: We're certainly looking at it. I don't want to get in front of the president, but it's something we're looking at.
0: Would you recommend that people download that up on their phones uh, tonight, tomorrow, anytime, uh, currently?
3: Only if you want your private information in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party.
1: And American firms are caught, too, in the geopolitical tensions between the world's two biggest economies. Google, Microsoft, and Twitter all said they would stop cooperating with Hong Kong's authorities for the time being because of a sweeping new security law there imposed by Beijing. It all adds up to what's being called a new Cold War, fought on a digital battleground.
3: For the last three or four years, people have talked about the
1: tech Cold War. Patrick Fowles is The Economist's business affairs editor.
3: But The strange thing is it's been hard to see evidence of much damage on the ground. And in fact, for companies like Apple and Huawei in China, it's really been a golden era in some ways with record sales and profits over the last couple of years. What's become clear, however, in the last few weeks, is that the tech cold war is really beginning
1: to bite. And and why is that? Why is that split becoming so much more certain now?
3: Well, I think what you can do is look at it at two speeds. The world of software and the internet was never particularly linked up in the first place. So, you know, Chinese uh, consumers can't use most American internet companies and vice versa. And what we're seeing there is the final tentacles are beginning to unwind really very quickly. And that's, that's, for example, the TikTok ban, the refusal of the US tech companies to play ball with the new Chinese law in Hong Kong. So that... The world really is splitting quickly. The thing that's taking more time is the hardware supply chains, which are much, much more rigid structures. It's many, many hundreds of billions of dollars of equipment in the ground, huge numbers of people being employed. And it's really very hard to untangle those quickly. But that does now seem to be happening as well, partly because of the American actions against Huawei, but also because China seems to be deciding, okay, we're going to have to go it alone here, which means we're going to have to really ramp up investment.
1: And so how, how prepared are the, the country's respective tech industries to, to make that split complete?
3: Well, in the world of software, it's already, in effect, pretty much happened. In the world of hardware, the answer is people are now beginning to get plans up and running. So SMIC, this Chinese semiconductor company, not taken that seriously in the past by its Western and Asian competitors. But now it's really raising very big bucks. The idea is to supersize the production capacity and sophistication of uh, semiconductors in China. That's a process that's underway. Similarly, Huawei in China is scrambling around to find alternative sources for the key components Mm -hmm. that it purchases from the West, particularly American companies. And over the next I think 18 months, we'll see a sense of whether that's possible. The one thing to make clear is there are some companies here which are just left in very uncomfortable positions. Apple in China, it makes over $100 million a day there. And there's simply no easy way for it to pick sides here. You know, it depends on the US and on China. Similarly, TSMC, which is the huge Taiwanese semiconductor company, that really dominates the industry to some degree, it depends on Chinese customers and American ones. And for those companies that are caught in the middle, there really is no simple answer to this.
1: But if the big picture here is that each country has to build up its own set of software and hardware champions, that sounds expensive, redundant. I mean, how easy will it be for these countries to make those parallel systems?
3: Well, I think uh, you can look at it in two ways one is is the sort of f- finances of it almost and, and just that you 're going to have to duplicate uh, supply chains to some degree and I think that you know that could easily cost hundreds of billions of dollars to do, but is not impossible and arguably within the scale of the overall economy is a sort of tolerable inefficiency. Um, I think the other cost, which is much harder to get to grips with, is just the risk of this process spiralling out of control. Um, And to give you two ways in which that could happen, it could easily, for example, move from the world of tech to the world of finance, with Western or Chinese banks subject to sudden prohibitions, bans, freezes of activity. And that could be much more destabilising because the financial system is very sensitive to changes like that. The other risk is just that this becomes the thin end of the wedge and you know sooner or later we find out that suddenly American cars or Chinese toys or a growing list of things are deemed to be of strategic importance and instead of this really being an argument about security it just becomes an indiscriminate path of protectionism that has a huge economic cost.
1: Well, on the technology end of things, that is inherently a a global business. How do you think other countries are going to deal with this split as it happens?
3: Well, the assumption, I think, of many American policymakers is that the world's default is to use Silicon Valley. And one of the things that will happen is that that assumption is tested in a pretty painful way. It's clear that some very close American allies, uh, Japan, Australia, uh, possibly Britain, will ultimately have asked to choose, go with America. But I think we'll see, first of all, that China's tech industry now has a very big sphere of influence that includes a lot of Asia, where people will continue to use Chinese tech. And secondly, that some big economies, India is the obvious one, may take a third path and you know be equally hostile or friendly to America and China and really seek to play both sides off while developing their own indigenous capacity. So at the end of the day, you're heading not towards a world where America uh, controls most of the, the world's technology and then there's this Galapagos of China with its own systems. I think instead you're heading to a world which is very fractured with the bulk of the world's population living in countries that use both systems and probably mistrust both to some degree.
1: So is it even sensible to ask who's likely to win the tech cold war?
3: I think you will see both superpowers do probably just fine because they are huge, sophisticated markets. And the real losers will be the node countries that are sort of stuck between the two, places like Taiwan, possibly Korea, where really it's impossible for them to pick sides and where their own technology industry as a result is going to face a very difficult period.
1: Patrick, thank you very much for your time.
3: Jason, thanks for having me.
1: For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to Economist.com/slash intelligenceoffer.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
1: Later today, at a prison in the American state of Indiana, the first federal execution in 17 years is set to take place. Daniel Lee, a white supremacist, was convicted in 1999 of the brutal triple murder of a family. His sentence, death by lethal injection. A last-minute delay sought by his victim's family was overturned over the weekend. Any further stays are in the hands of the Supreme Court. In America's justice system, Crimes can be tried either at the state or federal level, depending on the offence. Last year, states put 22 people to death. But the Trump administration is restarting federal executions at a time when public support for the punishment is fading.
2: About a year ago, William Barr, the attorney general, ordered that the death penalty be resumed at the federal level in America. Four people, all murderers, are due to be executed this summer. Adam Roberts is The Economist's Midwest correspondent, based in Chicago. The government said that the victims' families were owed justice. And maybe the more important point is that Donald Trump has long wanted capital punishment to be resumed at the federal level.
0: We have to bring back the death penalty. They have to pay the ultimate price. They have to pay the ultimate price. They can't do this. We must draw a line in the sand... And say very strongly, never again.
2: And Donald Trump knows that older Republicans very much share his view. If you look at people who are older than 50, you've got about four fifths of everyone is in favor of continuing with the death penalty. So he knows it's popular.
1: Well, that's among President Trump's base, uh, particularly the, the older part. But how does the rest of the country feel?
2: Right. So we've seen over the years that Donald Trump is very good at appealing to his base, but he might not have a great sense of what the rest of Americans want. And if you start looking at the opinion polls and what they say about younger Americans especially, you see that support for the death penalty has been plummeting. Gallup for the last 20 years has been asking people whether they think the use of the death penalty is moral, whether they support its use. And its latest report back in June found that only 54% of all Americans see it as moral. That's a record low and quite a dramatic drop from the year before. And crucially, young Americans are turning against the death penalty. And if you offer people an alternative punishment, if you say to them, what about punishment as life imprisonment without the possibility of any parole, then you already have a majority of Americans saying they'd like the death penalty not to be used. And perhaps what's most remarkable is that even among conservatives you have rising interest in repealing the death penalty. So there are groups such as conservatives concerned about the death penalty, who are working at the grassroots at the state level, sponsoring bills within certain states to repeal the death penalty at the state level. And this movement is gathering some momentum.
1: And why do you think there, there is that change in particular among conservatives?
2: Well, I think there's a whole host of factors. One of them is you can look, for example, at those who are Catholic and feel that if you have a pro-life point of view, if you believe that abortion, for example, is is not moral, then maybe you shouldn't be in favour of the death penalty either. And you can look at certain politicians, such as the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, a Catholic. He's a Republican, but he's made it clear that he won't be approving the use of executions in his time in office. And you look around the country at other states, you see that certain... Catholic and religious leaders are turning against the death penalty.
1: But but Catholics are just a, a minority of conservatives. This isn't the the entirety of the conservative base.
2: That's right. So I spoke to a state senator in Colorado, for example, who made the case that as a libertarian, as someone who believes that the state shouldn't have overwhelming power over citizens, the use of the death penalty was a very extreme example of overreach by the state. In some states, such as Wyoming, one of the concerns is the cost. The cost of prosecuting a death penalty case is extremely high. Jared Olson, a representative I spoke to in Wyoming, pointed out that it costs more than a million dollars to prosecute a death penalty case. And for many counties in a small and not very wealthy state like Wyoming, that's simply unaffordable. And as they're trying to save money, they think that maybe getting rid of the death penalty is one way to do so. There's been a tremendous amount of talk in America about criminal justice reform in in a a general
1: sense, given uh, recent protests. I mean, does that feed into this debate at all, do you think?
2: It does. I think if you spoke to Democrats, people on the left of the political spectrum, for many years they've pointed out that the death penalty is very unequally applied. And frequently it's the poor and black people who are the victims of the death penalty. They're much more likely to be put to death by the state than wealthy or white people. Now, that's on the left, but crucially, with the upsurge of the Black Lives Matter movement, I think more on the right have come to see that racial inequality is a very big issue as well. And I think, for example, in Wyoming, Mr. Olson spoke about a growing awareness of the racial application of the death penalty and how unfair that is. So I think there's a spreading awareness that it's just not a fair system.
1: And so how to square that then with an administration that seems to be ever keener on applying it?
2: Well, when you speak to those conservatives, they say that Donald Trump is out of touch with the grassroots, that he doesn't know what's going on in the states. I think if you look across the map of America, in fact, in the south of the US, the death penalty remains popular. But in the west, the north, the east, the death penalty is very much going out of favor. If you look at states such as New Hampshire and indeed Colorado, they both recently voted to abolish the death penalty. Next, it could be Ohio You see movements across America where values are changing, where culture is changing. So even among Republicans and conservatives, attitudes towards gay marriage, towards the legalization of marijuana, other social issues are shifting. And there's a very good chance, I think, that among younger Americans, changing attitudes to the death penalty will be the next one in that line.
1: Adam, thanks very much for your time.
2: Thank you, Jason.
4: The Good, the Bad and the Ugly by Ennio Morricone is one of the most iconic pieces of film music ever made.
1: John Bleasdale writes about culture for The Economist.
4: It's a theme which is almost comic in that it sort of shrieks at the audience. There's an element of the bizarre and the ridiculous to it. And that sense of humor was very much coming out of the music.
1: Morricone died earlier this month at the age of 91, after a nearly 50-year career composing scores to classics like The Thing and Cinema Paradiso. But Morricone was best known for his collaboration and his friendship with the Spaghetti Western director Sergio Leone.
4: So Ennio Morricone was born and raised in Rome. His family were musicians He grew up in an atmosphere of music and creativity. He started writing for films, and he had one of the most prolific careers of any composer, more than 400. I've even seen 500 quoted as the number of credits that he won. Ennio Morricone was already established as a composer when he was called by Sergio Leone, the film director, to score one of his first films. They grew up together in Rome in a relatively small sector of the city called Trastevere, which is a very working-class area of Rome, and they actually went to the same primary school together. However, when they met again in 1963, when Sergio Leone contacted Morricone to score what was then called in Magnifico Straniero, the Magnificent Stranger, Leone had no memory of meeting Morricone at school. According to Ennio Morricone, they were actually in a restaurant which was run by one of their old school friends, and he had the class photograph on the wall so he could sort of take it out and show Sergio, there you are and there I am. More than anything, I think the fact that they came from very similar cultural backgrounds and very similar economic and social backgrounds meant that they sort of shared a language, and this makes their relationship particularly close. When Sergio Leone was making The Magnificent Stranger, which was to become The Fistful of Dollars, the Spaghetti Western was a very stigmatized B-movie. It was very low-budget, and this was no exception. Normally for a Western in those days, a Howard Hawks Western or a John Ford Western, they would have a massive orchestra, and they would use that to express the great landscapes of Monument Valley and places like that. Morricone had no access to that kind of funding, so he used an array of instruments and really created a new soundscape for the Western. He used electric guitars, for instance, which were obviously completely anachronistic to the setting and the period. He used instruments which sounded weird, like whips, bullets. He used the human voice in a way that was very creative, either choirs or sopranos singing over it. Whistling was really important because it immediately made the tunes memorable. You literally left the cinema whistling the theme to the tunes. Once Upon a Time in the West really showed Ennio Morricone at his most experimental. Having become famous for making these very, very catchy tunes for the title sequences and what have you, the title sequence of Once Upon a Time in the West is supposedly silent. It's just a bunch of three men waiting for a train to arrive at a railway station. You have the sound of a fly buzzing, water drips on a hat, a sign creaks in the desert wind, Ennio Morricone was playing that as music. He was actually organising that as music. And so it was almost like a John Cage piece of found art. And this was very much to do with Ennio Morricone's work in the avant-garde music scene. He was part of a a group called Gruppo di Improvizzazione di Nuova Consonanza, or The Group, as it was called. He would bring that into the films in in this experimental way. Although Ennio Morricone was always a little bit prickly when he had to talk about the Spaghetti Westerns, he always wanted to emphasize he didn't only do the Spaghetti Westerns. It was with the Spaghetti Westerns that he had his closest collaboration. And I think he will be justly remembered and celebrated for all the music he created. But there will be a special place in everybody's heart for those Spaghetti Westerns that Leone and Morricone made together.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here tomorrow.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.